So we are, we're in Acts chapter 17, and I titled this, Come Now and Let Us Reason Together. That's not out of the book of Acts. That's out of Isaiah 118. And I, and I, want, I put this whole thing up here because I want you to remember, you know, we don't just look at the New Testament isolated Isaiah talked about this all the way back uh, when he was prophesying. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Now, most of us are saying, wow, that's pretty cool, right? We understand what's being said. We sang this this morning, didn't we? What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Amen? We sang this this morning, and we understand. But if you were to go to your best friend who's a non-Christian and say, Though your skins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They would look at you and they'd like go, huh? The only proverb I know is don't eat the yellow snow, right? It doesn't make sense. Though you are red, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And any sheep farmer knows what it takes to get wool once it's been sheared off a sheep into something you can use and you can weave with. It's a process. And so when he says, come, let us reason together, what he's saying is, let's sit down and talk about what does this mean. And as we look in Acts chapter 17, we're going to see Paul reason with some different people. Now, we've watched through the book of Acts, and we've seen God harvest souls in many different ways. In Acts chapter 2, we saw Peter got up and preached, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, and under the presentation of the gospel, 3,000 people got saved. In Acts chapter 4, we saw 5,000 people got saved in the same circumstances. Those are awesome. There's nothing like going to a, to a crusade and watching hundreds or thousands of people coming to Christ at the same time. But those don't happen every day. And then we, we've seen, as people have gotten saved, in entire family units, Cornelius and his whole household, Lydia and her whole household, the Philippian jailer and his whole household. We saw God move in, in family units and people got saved. And that's awesome. And that's quite, that happens because God moves from person to person within a family. My mom got saved on Easter Sunday morning. My dad got saved six weeks later. Their, their mom and daddy, none of them were churchgoers at the time. My grandma came to Christ. My grandpa came to Christ. My aunt came to Christ. Her family came to Christ. Sometimes God moves through families. And then there are times when God sends somebody specifically to somebody that they don't even know 
like Philip was sent to the Ethiopian eunuch, didn't know him from Adam, sitting on the side of the road. What are you reading? Oh, he's reading from Isaiah. And he says, do you understand? No, I don't understand. I don't have a man to teach me. And he jumped up into the chariot with a hitchhiker, right? We wouldn't dare pick up a hitchhiker today. They might lead us to Christ, right? <laughs> but, but God used that. But by and large, my experience has been that most people come to Christ over a period of time when somebody has sat down with them with a Bible and shared with them the gospel and, and it's taken some time. They've built a relationship. They've shared, they, they've answered their questions. And that's, that's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 17. We're going to watch as Paul works with different people in different ways for the same result, which is to bring people to Jesus. And we all, and you say, well, I'm not Paul. I don't have Paul's ability. Well, I got news for you. We all have a responsibility to be able to share the gospel. And we all have people around us that need to hear it. So Acts chapter 17 And we're going to start out with the first four verses. Now when they had traveled through Ampelius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, among, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So, let's remember our journey. So, Paul is up here in Philippi. He's been beaten. The Philippian jailer uh, lets him go. And uh, off they go down here. They hit these two small cities, and they end up in Thessalonica. They're in there, they're, remember, they're over in Macedonia now, just above Greece. And as they go along, they come to this. The, now, the two little cities, they didn't, it doesn't seem like they spent any time with, maybe just spending the night on their way to Thessalonica. Thessalonica at this time is a large city, it's about 200,000 people. It's, of course, this is part of the Roman Empire, but the, but the city of Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia. And it is known as a free city, which means even though they were under Roman rule, they were able to to govern themselves. It is also on the road that leads from Rome across Macedonia, across Greece, Macedonia, 
all the way to the west. They would come to Thessalonica. They would jump on a ship. They would sail across the Aegean Sea, hit landfall at Troas, and they would continue on that, that uh, route. The old saying, all roads lead to Rome, is absolutely true in this case because they had, they had built a, a, a road that went all the way across and Thessalonica was right in the middle of that. So they come to Thessalonica and what is the first thing Paul does? He, he starts to preach and it says he preaches for three Sabbaths. Now most of us say, oh, well he was there for the for, for three weeks and then off he goes. No. Uh, he's just telling you that for the first three weeks that he was in Thessalonica, he began to preach because we know he was there longer than that because in uh, Philippians 4.16 it says, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So obviously he was there long enough for the folks in Philippi to say, oh, Paul, Paul needs some extra support. Let's send an offering down to him. They're a small house church, but they want to say, they want to thank him for what he did. And so and more than once they sent money down to him. Also in First and 2 Thessalonians, it tells us that everybody that was with him at this point, we, have, we know that we have Silas and Timothy with him. They were all working during that time. Because in both of those books, Paul said, hey, we worked so we weren't a burden on you. The likelihood is this was probably not a very big synagogue, for one thing. And they didn't, they hadn't built a church there yet. And so they had to work. They were, we, we would say they were in the tent making industry, right? They were working a job and they were also preaching so Paul wasn't there for just three weeks. He was there for a period of time. We don't know exactly how long, but it was an extended period of time. And it says that he was reasoning in the synagogue, but he was also reasoning to other people because it gives us a list of different people that came to Christ. It says that both the Jew, some of the Jewish believers came to Christ a large number of Greek, uh, probably Greek proselytes, and then a number of leading women came to Christ. Have you, ever, have you noticed that how responsive, it, it doesn't say, and the leading men came to Christ? Women seem to be more responsive to Christ when it's preached than the men do. I... <laughs> Amen. That's true. That's absolutely true. And so, but it says that he reasoned. Now, this term, to reason, in Greek is where we get our word dialogue. In Greek, that's, a, that's what that word that he uses for reason. To have a dialogue. Now, what does it take to have a dialogue? Takes at least two people, and they both have to talk. This is not preaching. This is not me standing up here and taking the word and preaching to you. That is not dialogue. 
dialogue is when you sit down with somebody and you say, hey, have you ever thought about, and you take people wherever they are. Now, with the Jews, it's awesome because they have something that Paul already is is familiar with. They're in the synagogue, and Paul is what? He's a Jew. Not only is he a Jew, he is a rabbi. He's a teacher. And so, as was his custom, he would come into the synagogue on, on the Sabbath day, and they would read from the scripture, and then because Paul's a traveling rabbi, they would say, hey, Brother Paul, come preach to us. What do you have to say about this? And so what did Paul do? He's got a captive audience. Hey, let me tell you about this scripture. And so, so they'll start with whatever that scripture is, and he shows how it pertains to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That whenever you read Christ, Christ is the Greek term for Messiah. And so to the Hebrews, he's saying, listen, let me tell you who the Messiah is. You missed out. So he's taking the oath. And so he starts there because that's the easy place to start. We have scriptures. We can go read the scrolls. We can find out what God has to say. And so he has dialogue with them. He is talking about what God is doing. Now, how does that relate to us? I think most of us know people that go to churches that don't preach the gospel. I think, I, I think if you look in your group of people, you start asking around and you say, hey, you know, Pastor Ben gave this really good message the other day about, about how Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And they probably look at you and go, huh? My, my church, matter of fact, I had a conversation with some people just this week. They said, yeah, we were in a church and I sat there for three weeks and in three weeks my pastor did not mention Jesus Christ. In three, and this is, a, this is not, this is a Bible-believing evangelical church. We, what do we, we need to keep the main thing the main thing, right? <laughs> and Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again, that's exactly what Paul preached, right? But he started with what, what they had and where they were. And that's a really good place for us to start is with our religious, our spiritual friends. Hey, tell me about, you, you go to this church over here, Tell me about this church. What is your pastor? Where are you guys at? What are you? What is your pastor preaching on? I don't know. I don't know. You get that. You get that. It's a great place to start because there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people out there that are spiritual, or they're religious, but they don't know Jesus Christ as their savior. What a wonderful place to start because you have a common background because you have this and you can take them and you can reason with them. You can talk with them through the Bible and say, hey, it's, do, is this what you believe? Good place to start. 
Start with those who have a common theme with you. And you want to notice that when you start talking about Jesus Christ, one of two things is going to happen. One, they're going to say, wow, I've never heard that before. Tell me more. And you're going to get them involved and they're going to come to Christ and you're going to have a great relationship. The other one might be, talk to the hand. Don't want to hear it. You guys over there with your Bible-thumping preacher, you know, without, you, you, everything's Jesus. I don't want to be part of that. I want, to, I, want to, I want to hug everybody. I want to be inclusive. One of two things is going to happen. They're either going to say, wow, I never saw that before. I need to hear that. Or they're going to be over here saying, I don't want to hear that because that doesn't fit with my theology. My theology says I can party all week and as long as I hit the, hit the uh, confessional on Saturday and go to church on Sunday, I'm okay the rest of the week. You see, we want to, we, that's, God is one of those people that it causes people to react. And in this case, in Thessalonica, I don't know where Paul and Silas went off to, but they, were, they, they couldn't find them. They went to Jason's house, which was apparently the man who they were living with, working for, were working with. And the crowd, the Jewish people got the crowd, all the unbelieving Jewish people got the crowd all whipped up. They went to Jason's house. It says that they took Jason, they, they said, this guy is part of one of them that upset the world. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not meant to be we're not meant to be the timid little sheep wandering around, never bothering anybody. We're to, be, we're to upset the world. Because that's when people change. And they took Jason and they, they said, well, he's not the guy we're looking for, but they made Jason post-bond. And so Paul and Silas, when they heard about it, they said, hey, we need to leave because we don't want to cause Jason any more problems. So off they go. They ship them to Berea. They ship them to uh, Berea and uh, just kind of show you. Berea is, there's Thessalonica. Berea is just out in the middle of no place. You know, it's like, hey, we want to get these guys out of Albany, so we're going to send them to Waterloo. Right? Nobody looks for somebody in Waterloo. <laughs> they shipped him to Berea. And so in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 12, we read about what, what Paul does, what Paul and Silas and Timothy, they go to Berea. And chapter, verse 10 says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, and examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore many of them believed along with the number 
of prominent Greek women and men. We'll stop there. They go to Berea. We've seen it on the map. And they meet some incredible people. They go to the synagogue, and these were people who were eager to learn about what Paul and Silas and Timothy had to say. They challenged the scriptures. Now, one of the things that I want you to understand is they, you are going to meet people, especially if you, if you will find some of those people that know the scriptures that are religious or they're spiritual, some people are going to challenge you. Some people will challenge you, and I don't mean opposition. I mean, you're going to, get to, you're going to start talking with them, and they're going, to, they're going to bring up something, you're going to be like, wow, I didn't know that. They're going to have more information about the Bible than you do. And that's going to challenge you because what do you have to do? You've got to go, you got to, you've got to go figure out if what they said is true. Because that's what these people did. They went, and it says they were more noble-minded, they were, they had great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You know, one of the reasons we give you the notes in, in your, is for you to, to sit down and take down what, the information, things that spur you, and then take it home and don't just let it sit there. Well, Pastor Ben read that verse. Did he really read that in context or did he, was he just pulling stuff? That's your job. Your job is to challenge me. If you don't think I was right, you need to call me up on Monday morning and say, hey, I'm not reading this the same way that you are. And we can talk about that. But as we grow, we need to be able to talk to other people about Jesus. And some people will challenge you, and, and rightfully so. Because we need to be able to share our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. If somebody says to you, why do you, why do you go to that east side place? Why, why, why do you, what's so big about that? You, know, you, give, you only have two days off a week, and one of them you spend in church. Well, you know, and what's most of our answers? Well, just come on and you'll see. Now, we need to be able to say, you know, first of all, God says what? The greatest commandment is, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind. Right? And that's the first thing we need to do. That's the first answer we said. I love Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And I worship 
God. And then we get into the Trinity, and you're like going, oh, wait a second, what, was the, what were those verses about the Trinity? You know, that's weird. Three gods all in one. What's that all about? But we can, you know, that should be the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Is I love God, and I love spending time with him, and I love spending time with the people who love God. You know, if you love football, where am I going to find you on Sunday? In the stands, right? Or in front of the TV. Some of you like baseball. You know, oh, hey, it's nothing to drop $1,000 to go up and watch the Mariners play. Right? Get those sideline seats. I love Jesus because of what he's done for me. Defending what we believe. Now, there's a class I teach. I'll teach it again uh, either this, probably this fall. Called Discovering Spiritual Maturity. And in one of those, I talk about what does it take to study the Bible? Because most of us are probably pretty good at reading the Bible. I think if I did a poll, most of you say, yeah, I read my Bible every day. Or at least a good chunk of you would be. And most of us think, if I read my Bible for 15 minutes every day, I'm going to know a lot about the Bible. And then somebody asks us a question. And so one of the things in my class that I teach is what does it take to study? There's a couple things that everybody should have in their, in their library where they, where they have time, uh, where they actually study the word, is a good study Bible, a concordance. Now, what's a concordance? It's, it tells you every verse that has a particular word into it, right? So if I want to look up... Uh, justify, I can see every place in the scripture. Now, it's really good to have a concordance that matches your study Bible, the version that you have your study Bible in. Uh, And and then the next thing is a Bible handbook that just kind of gives you a good overview of things in the Bible. You know, who who taught it? When was it written? uh, You know, where was it written? What was the audience? And the last one is a Bible dictionary. Because the Bible was written a long time ago, right? And sometimes it's really good to, if you want to understand what a certain word means, is to have a Bible dictionary. And that will help you because when people start challenging you and you're kind of going, oh, where's that verse? Um, It's in here someplace. Now, I will tell you that in the technology age, almost all of this is available online. There are some really good online apps that will help you. And so you can do, you can go in, you can, uh, I use Bible Gateway. I can type in a word. I can, I can ask, to give me every place that's in the scriptures. I can type in a phrase and it all pops up for me. And then I can say, oh, well, maybe I memorized that in the King James Version. So I can pop over to the King James Version. But anyway, those are things. That's study. Study is not, oh, I read a chapter and a half today. 
Study is sitting down and saying, what does God say? And when people challenge you in, your, in knowing the scriptures, you need to be able to give them an answer. There may also be those who challenge you that are unbelievers. And there's two really good books. I think they're on your, actually on your sheet. Evidence that Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Now this, was, this is written probably 40 years ago. Josh McDowell has written probably hundreds of books altogether. But Josh McDowell was an atheist. And somebody said, listen, if you really want to, if you're really an atheist, I challenge you to prove that Jesus doesn't exist. So the first book he wrote was, uh, was Jesus, uh, more than a carpenter, was Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? And then he wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Really good book on, on people who have good questions. It, it, it will enlighten your eyes. Uh, the other is A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter who set out to prove that Jesus was not, was, didn't exist. And so Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ. Both really good books on how you can literally research who Jesus is. Both of them are available in our library next door. I challenge you to read them because it helps you get in the mind of, I, 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 yes, I walk by faith, but I also want to know everything I can about who this Jesus is that I'm saying I trust to get me to heaven. And both of those are really good books. They will help you as you, and it will also help you in how you relate to others, how you reason with others. If you've ever been to a, uh, ever heard Josh McDowell speak, he is amazing to listen to him refute people who are atheists because that's really the ground he works with on, on universities, places that people really challenge who the very existence of God. So Paul and Silas and Timothy reasoned together. We don't know how long. They're in Berea, small town. They had more time, one-on-one. -on -one. And apparently it went, it went uh, really well until the Jews from Thessalonica found out they were there. And those Jewish, those Jewish people that never believed decided hey, we're going we're gonna to cause these guys a problem. And so they came down and they basically ran them out of town. But Paul, and, uh, Paul leaves. Timothy and Silas stay. And Paul is going to make his journey uh, down to Athens. So let's, uh, let's pick up now in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked with him as he observed a city full of idols. He was reasoning 
in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. And also the, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, that same word, that dialogue. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler say? The others would say, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Aragopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears so that we, we, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting were used to spending their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, <laughs> hard word, Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God, therefore that you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Athens, much, much different place. They have went from Berea up here. Paul jumped on a ship and he sails down and he comes to Athens down here in the end of Greece. Athens is a city-state. Once again, a very large city. And it was pagan, pagan, pagan. Matter of fact, it was so pagan that it had caused that to run into the synagogue. Notice he went to the synagogue and he preached to not only the Jews, but also the Greek Gentiles. Gentiles are not allowed in a synagogue. So they, they have mixed this whole Jewish synagogue with, with Greek Gentiles and, and Paul's in there reasoning with them. But where's the other place that he went? He went to the marketplace. So Athens is, they, if you go there today, what's the big thing? Anybody been to Greece? Athens, the Parthenon, right, Ben? So it's way up on the hill. The Acropolis is the highest hill, and there sits the Parthenon. Now, the Parthenon was where they worshipped Athena, the, the patron saint of there, so to speak, of all of Athens. It sits on the highest hill. And they had, they had temples everywhere. They had idols everywhere. There's over 300 different worst places they worshipped. And they were just pagan to the core. And they had these philosophers that were there. You go, hey, what's new today? We, listen to this guy. And, and that, that term that they give him, babbler, that's a seed picker. That's a very, it's one of those, it's not nice. You know, some guy that knows no more than to eat watermelon and spit the seeds. Oh, yeah, I, somebody's been in the South. 
right? We didn't have seedless watermelons growing up. You ate your watermelon, spit seed. You're just a, speed, a seed spitter. That's what they're called. But he goes into the, into the marketplace and he begins to see these people. And, and he sees this, this one to the unknown God and they say, but he's talking to everybody he can about Jesus and the resurrection. Now they're like, scratches, what's the resurrection? Because that same word, they had a goddess of resurrection. So they're, they're thinking, what's he talking about? He said, this Jesus guy. We don't understand it. And so they take him to the, and I hate the, trying to say, the Aragopagus. They also called it Mars Hill. We'll use that. They take him to Mars Hill, and in Mars Hill is where all the council came together. The elders of the city, they're a city-state, they're allowed to run their own affairs, and that's where they did it. It's the second hill. The big hill up here is where the Parthenon ends. Mars Hill is just lower than it. And they would come together, and they brought him there. But not before he raised a lot of questions in a lot of people talking with them in the marketplace. He was talking to people where they lived and worked. Where's your marketplace? He said, well, I'm retired. Good for you. You have a marketplace. It may be the gym. It may be the literal shopping market. It may be McDonald's. <laughs> oh, tell me, how many of you go to McDonald's at least once a week and you have coffee with somebody? Right? Okay. See, they're over there. Amen. Amen. McDonald's, dollar coffee. Uh, did it go up to a dollar thirty-nine? Senior coffee. Get the senior coffee. I have a friend of mine that, that just died recently, Phil McLean. He was my uh, he was the uh, assistant chief in Albany and then retired, moved down to Kingman, Arizona. He died this last year. And one thing I knew about Phil is that Phil, every morning of the world, he had breakfast at McDonald's. He did it when he lived in Prineville. Matter of fact, I was visiting Prineville uh, one day and I rolled up in my motorcycle to, to get an iced tea. I don't drink coffee, sorry guys, no offense. Uh, to get an iced tea and a, and a and a breakfast biscuit, and here's Phil. I'm like, Phil, what are, you, what are you doing? Oh, I come here every morning for breakfast. Well, in Kingman, Arizona, after he died, his daughter went down there, and she, he noticed, she noticed that in his planner, every day at 7 a.m., McDonald's. And then, and then beside it, he would write what he had to eat. Every day. So she went down to McDonald's and said, I just wanted you to know my dad, Phil McLean, died. And they were like going, oh, are you kidding me? We were wondering why he wasn't here. But occasionally you know, he, would, he would take off for a couple weeks, come up here, see his grandkids, see his kids. Did that quite often. We just thought he was on a trip. And then they began telling her Phil knew everybody here. 
He knew everybody by name. He knew when their birthdays were. When their birthdays came, he would slip them a, a gift card. He, Phil always had, he, he had three or four gift cards on him all the time. Because he, he, because if somebody says, oh, well, I'm celebrating an anniversary. Here, go out to, go out to whatever restaurant on me. That's, Phil had a marketplace at McDonald's. He had a marketplace where he worked out. Every place he went, everybody knew Phil's heart for Jesus. Those were his marketplaces, and we have to find our marketplaces. And, and in those marketplaces, we cannot be silent. We need to be sharing Jesus everywhere we go. And Paul did, and they, some of them went, huh? You're a seeds picker. I don't understand. But others say, I want to hear more. And they took Paul, and what did he do? He took them right where they were, which is ground zero. He said, you, I saw an idol to the unknown God. See, they were hedging their bets in every way they could. We named all, we got all these 300, oh, and we're going to give one to the unknown God just to make sure we're covered. He says, I know the unknown God. And you know what's interesting? Is Paul took them to the creator. He took them to Genesis. And he laid the base in his message from the fact that there's a creator and you're responsible to the creator. He takes them from Genesis all the way to salvation. And that's in his he was in the marketplace. You know, Jesus told us something before he left in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that term, go, therefore, literally means while you are going. Every one of us is going. We're going someplace. We're going to, to out to eat. We're going to the grocery store. We're going someplace. And while we are going, make disciples. Build it into your life. Be ready by studying the word of God to know how to, how to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And that's what Paul did. Every place he went. It didn't matter whether they were like the Bereans. And they knew a lot and they were willing to challenge him on what he brought forward. Or whether they were the Athenians who knew absolutely nothing about who Jesus Christ was. Paul was ready. And he sought them out. He didn't, he didn't wait for them to come. Yeah, if you want to know about Jesus, you just come to my church. No. Paul went out there. And he said, I'm in, wherever I go, I want to find people who need to know about Jesus, and then I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to show them how much Jesus means to me.